So tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit about this form of practice, the Vipassana meditation retreat, and tell you a little bit about the understanding from which it comes and how we can best use it. You've probably noticed already, if this is your very first retreat, that this is quite unlike a vacation, is it not? You couldn't exactly say it's a spa experience. Nor is it like a workshop or a yoga class or a meditation intensive, you know, and weekend enlightenment intensive. It has its own very particular form and way. And it has, it is created this way uh, with a purpose behind it. So I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about that. Um, the understanding on which this practice is based is, is, is really the understanding that the Buddha discovered in his own process of awakening. His process of awakening illustrates a process of learning through trial and error. He made mistakes and learned from them. That's the way I like to think about it. And his willingness to stay open to the learning was what led to his enlightenment. I like this understanding because it points to the fact that he was a human being, like all of us. He wasn't some, you know, special, special, special person but a human being who learned through trial and error. So his story can inform our own journey. As many of you know, the Buddha Buddha to-be that was born as into the family, a royal family, his father was a king, they had wealth, they had privilege, they had power. And of course, being the only son, his father wanted him to stay in the family business, so to speak, and become the heir to his kingdom. And so he spoiled his son and gave him everything he wanted, and he lived a life of great uh, comfort, pleasure, had everything that in this world we call Uh, a fortunate uh, life. But something inside of him was unsatisfied, was something was stirring in him, something that he was not finding, even with uh, the best of what his, what life was offering him. Anyway, one night he asked a servant to take him into town because his father had protected him from knowledge of the world. But he got this servant to take him into town where it is said that this young prince saw for the first time what are called the four heavenly messengers. What are they? 
Perhaps you've heard this story. Has anybody heard this story? The heavenly messengers? What was the first heavenly messenger that he saw? The first was an old person. Somebody obviously aging, white hair, wrinkles, aging. He had only been surrounded by beautiful young people. Aging, an aging person. The second heavenly messenger was, was what? A sick person, somebody really ill. The third heavenly messenger was a corpse. The fourth heavenly messenger was a wandering holy person who looked very serene, very peaceful. These are called the four heavenly messengers. They shocked him, just as when we first see death, when we are first confronted with death, with a corpse, with somebody dying, with somebody very ill that we've known, it kind of shocks our mind, does it not? It, it, does something to the mind. So it awoke in the Buddha a desire to find a way to understand and relate to the inevitable sorrow of aging and illness, pain of illness and death. I remember when I first heard this story, it really resonated. I had met, uh, my first Buddhist teacher was a Tibetan Lama, who, this was back in the 70s, and there weren't as many Lamas here as there are now, but I met a, a wonderful man who, who um, I was amazed to hear his story of having to flee from Tibet with only a few treasured possessions and a great deal of difficulty and hardship and coming over the mountains into India. And so he was basically a refugee. But what really, so his story was very compelling, but it didn't fit with my image of how a refugee should feel because he was so joyful and so compassionate. And I thought, wow, somebody who'd been through that much loss and disruption could come out of it with such a joyful, open-hearted demeanor and way. Well, it made quite a, that was a heavenly messenger in my life. So some of you may have experienced heavenly messengers of other kinds in your life. What, what kinds have you experienced? Has it been the, the loss of someone you loved? It can be the other side. It can be the birth of a child. It can be meeting a very wonderful, inspiring person. It can be being taken care of with a great deal of compassion and care. It can be illness. It can be a sudden change in fortune. All these, these, these ways in which life wakes us up, wakes us up, gets our attention. That can be a heavenly messenger. So in the face of these 
this kind of shock to his mind, the Buddha decided to leave his comfortable life and take up the life of a wandering holy person, a wandering ascetic. So he did that. He left behind his privilege and his wealth and his comfort and his security and thought that the way to find what he was intuiting to be found was through a life of great austerity. And so he, he took up with people who were practicing um, austere practices of starving the body and not, not allowing the body any kind of uh, pleasure. He took up that kind of path and thought that would be the way to transcend the sorrows of the world. But it didn't work. It didn't work. And so he began to question that. And through his own questioning and his own seeing that this wasn't working, he decided to take up a path of moderation called the middle way. So he took some food. He began to take better care of his body. But at the same time, he kept his spiritual quest alive. He didn't go back to the palace and say, well, that was a mistake. He kept on this with this question inside of him to find the truth of life. So the middle way was born. In his first discourse after his enlightenment, the Buddha said, there are two extremes that ought not to be cultivated. What two are these? There is devotion to the pursuit of pleasure, and there is devotion to self-mortification. The middle way avoids both of these extremes. It is the way to vision, to knowledge, to peace, to eventually nibbana. And so... Through trial and error, what the Buddha learned was that neither his life of great wealth and ease and pleasure, that was not conducive to awakening, nor was this very austere life of self-mortification. The best way was a moderate approach, not too much pleasure, not too much austerity. And we like to say that retreats, such as this one, is an expression of this middle way. I think Howie said last night, sometimes it's called in Marin County at least, the upper middle way, (laughs) being that this is a very comfortable situation, right? You have, most of you have your own rooms, you have, you're given food every day, you don't have to go out in the streets and beg, you have heat and light and you know, you, it's a pretty cushy situation in many ways, given, you know, all the other ways there are to be in this world. We are in a pretty fortunate situation here. On the other hand, we're not giving you everything you want, right? Today, did you bump into any desires for, you know, a different kind of food or you know, wanting to perhaps talk on the phone or check your email or read a good book or get a massage or, you know, do a lot of other things that um, 
you might do in your, in your normal everyday life. But on retreat, we're letting go of a lot to be here. We're asking you to let go of a lot of your habits of indulgence and comfort. You know, all the little ways we, we like to uh, distract ourselves, entertain ourselves. That's not so available here. I mean, we know that you entertain yourself in your mind. That, of course, we, we understand. That's kind of to be expected. You're all, you're sitting in this room. It's really quiet. Nobody's bothering you. You know, you can indulge in all kinds of fantasies while you're sitting here. But for the most part, we, it's, a, it's a situation that is supporting you, but, it, but it's not, you know, it's not giving you everything that you want. So it is an expression of this middle way. And this retreat form is quite well suited to our life here in America and in this part of the world. You wouldn't find such retreats if you went to Asia, where the practices are uh, more, um, well, you would, you would find this kind of practice perhaps in a monastery, but you wouldn't find it among lay practitioners. And so this form of retreat has evolved in the West primarily as a suitable vehicle for us as lay people with jobs, with families, with complicated, busy lives. We're not living as monastics. We can't get up at four in the morning and do two hours of practice before we tr- toddle off to work. It doesn't work for us to live that way. But this kind of retreat works very well for people in our situation. We can take time off. We can come here just as you have and take this time away. Time away. It's very rare in this world and we're very fortunate to be able to take such time to hear the Dharma, to have time to practice, to turn your attention inward over and over. So the question that I'd like to explore with you tonight is how how to make best use of this kind of retreat. As I've said, the Buddha showed us a way of learning. So I like to think of retreats as the support for a certain kind of learning. When we're in a situation when we're being asked to learn, just as you are here, we're we're asking you to learn by looking within to see your own experience, it requires something from you. It requires letting go of your preferences, of your likes, of your dislikes. When we're in a learning situation, we can't say, well, I like this part of the learning, but I don't like this part. So I think I'll just ignore the part I don't like and just, you know, that's not learning. That's just liking and disliking. 
I recently had to go to traffic school in another state. And at the end of this traffic school experience, I had to take a written test. And it wasn't the kind of learning that I could say that I was really eager to be subjected to. But you know what traffic school is like. I, or perhaps you don't. If you are lucky, you don't. But I wasn't so lucky. Anyway, so I had to learn all kinds of things about this other state's driving laws that, you know, wasn't so thrilling to learn, but, <laughs> but I learned enough and I, I passed the test. But it wasn't that I was, I, I could have thought of a lot of other ways I would have preferred spending my time, for example, than, than sitting in traffic school, but, you know, that's the way it is with learning sometimes. We, we have to stay open even when our preferences are to be doing something more enjoyable. So with mindfulness as our guide here, with this practice of being awake, of being present with what is, looking within to see what is here, what am I experiencing now? With this, with this curious, open attention called mindfulness, we can learn on, the, on a retreat from all the various experiences we have, whether they're in the kitchen or in our, in our room or in the, in the dining hall or whether it's sitting in the hall or walking meditation. All of these are equally good opportunities for learning. Achancha said, meditation is giving rise to wisdom in the mind. That's kind of, you know, we, we kind of know that. Meditation is about wisdom. But then, this is the part I like. He said, this we can do anywhere, anytime, and in any posture. Now, most people think of meditation as what, we're do, what we do in here, sitting on a cushion. But he's saying, no, meditation can happen anywhere, anytime, in any posture. So that's very much the attitude of a retreat, is that the learning is continuous if you're paying attention. So there are some conditions of the retreat that I'd like to talk about that particularly uh, point us to learning. And one, of course, is from the instructions that we give in the practice itself, in the sitting practice, in the walking practice, the instructions that we give every morning. The sitting and walking meditation on this kind of retreat provide the basic structure and keep our life very simple. The simple structure teaches us about mindfulness. It teaches us what mindfulness is because it, it asks a lot from us. It keeps saying, keep coming back keep coming back. When we keep coming back, we are opening ourselves to learning. And in that, we are letting go of a tremendous amount. We are letting go of a lot of our usual habits and distractions. And the first day or so of retreat can be very difficult because it is like we are 
addicts being going through a kind of withdrawal. Only in this case, we are not withdrawing from a drug, but from our usual distractions. Our speedy, our speedy lives, our, our thinking, our manic activity, we're withdrawing from all that. So if you're feeling a little, you know, in the, in the, in the midst of withdrawal, that's what, you're with, that's what it's about. And it's not at all uncommon. So if you are feeling that, you're, you're right on schedule. After a few days, that kind of clears. And you begin to feel a lot better, actually. Not so sort of, you know, jangled or numb or uh, spaced out. You begin to wake up a little and look around. The world may look a little brighter, a little more interesting than when you're in the middle of withdrawal. We understand this. So don't apologize. It's kind of like the way it is on retreat. You're, you come in here going 90 miles an hour and suddenly you're, <laughs> suddenly we're going, you know, 15, 20 if you're lucky, you know, we're just, we're moving at a much slower pace. So we may feel a lot of resistance in this process of letting go. You think, oh God, walking, I can't stand it. You know, what we have to do, how many walking periods are there on this schedule? You look at the schedule and you just want to, you know, go home immediately. It's rather daunting to look at all this. Or we may be, we, we, we may suddenly feel resistance to the group. What's wrong with these people? They, they look like zombies, you know, maybe that, maybe I am with the wrong group. Like Mark said last night, he, he saw the people at the train station, decided not to go to the retreat. You know, maybe you got in with the wrong crowd or something, you know, we just have all kinds of, uh, Negative projections start flying around, or we suddenly have a deep longing to call home. How is everybody? I wonder if they're okay, or how's the dog, or did I get any mail? You know, anything like suddenly seems like urgent. Oh, I've got to make contact with the real world. Or we might get busy thinking about all the ways the retreat could be improved. I mean, obviously, these people need help. They have no idea how it is out here. With They need to improve this situation. So you might be thinking of the notes you could write to, you know, the managers, or if it's really urgent, maybe Jack Cornfield would like to know. And that kind of thinking goes on. Or we just hear the instructions and we think, not for me. Oh, no, that's not my way. I have a better way. (laughs) And so we kind of do our own thing. It's called mindfulness as a last resort. (laughs) And it's true. You know, many people, we, we think our way is, I don't need to do this. And then, you know, it's a certain level of desperation and suffering that finally, oh, okay, I'll give it a shot. And maybe you might be surprised that it actually works. 
So, feelings of resistance, feelings of avoidance, um, quite common at the beginning. And just as we develop our habits at home, our routines at home, we also can develop retreat, retreat, retreat routines. And we tend to get very attached to them, you know, sit a little bit, go back and wash my socks. That's really important. And maybe I'll go for a hike and maybe I'll get back in time for the next sitting. If I don't, I'll do another walking. And we get into these little loops that can keep us very comfortable on retreat. It's not a bad thing, but it doesn't really meet the, meet what this is showing, you know, it's like another kind of routine. There was a retreat years ago where um, it was an experiment, and I wasn't on the retreat, I heard about it a lot. Uh, It was a retreat where two teachers who were teaching it took away everybody's watches, they hid all the clocks, they took down the schedule, and Nobody knew ever what was going to happen next. One thing that the schedule does give us is this kind of sense of security about knowing what's going to happen next. Oh, there's going to be a walking at 11.50. Like, wow, you know, like at least we know what's going to be happening. But they took down the schedule. Nobody knew what was coming next. So they'd come in the hall. There were no assigned seats. You might come in the hall, and the seat you sat in last time, somebody else is sitting there. And you sit down for the sitting. You have no idea how long it's going to be. Maybe it'll only be five minutes. Maybe it'll be two hours. You had no no idea how long. Sometimes they had an early lunch, sometimes a late lunch. This drove everybody completely crazy, (laughs) as you can imagine. But it also kept them very much in the present. You get it? How much we rely on, you know, these imaginary ideas of time and schedule to help us feel like, you know, we're okay. We know what's happening. So I think if we actually gave retreats like that, nobody would ever come. So we don't. But it was an interesting experiment. So the instructions we learn from, we also learn from the silence. There's a lot to be learned from the silence, from working with the precepts, from being alone in a continuous way, from our work meditation, from what occurs in the living quarters, also from the ways in which we think about and relate internally to the other people here. Have you had any judgments of each other? Most likely you have. Really, it is most useful to see the entire retreat situation as a mirror, as a mirror of your own mind, as a mirror of your own projections. All this silence with all these people you don't know, it is such a beautiful setup 
to see your own projections. Often this goes on. It reflects back to us our tendencies, our habits, our preferences, our opinions, our expectations. And it is just useful to say, oh, this is my mind. This is not necessarily what is true out here. In that, we begin to notice our mind's tendencies. We can notice how judgmental we are, or how impatient, or how obsessed, or how (laughs) manic, or how uh, fearful. All kinds of things can get projected onto the space. When I did my first long silent retreat, I was terrified. And so I was afraid of everything. (laughs) And I I just, you know, it was just, but I thought it was real. You know, I really believed all the projections. So it was very painful. I learned quickly that it was my projection. But at first it was just amazing to see what the mind was up to. And it is also true that in seeing our mind's tendencies, we learn something about the mind itself, how it has a mind of its own. We come here for peace, for calm, for a sense of well-being, to feel more settled in ourselves. And does that happen easily, quickly? Most likely not. Most likely you sit down and before you know it, your mind is, is obsessed with something or planning something or judging someone or caught up in some internal drama that you had no intention of doing when you sat down. But suddenly you find yourself in this uh, display of the mind's nature, which is to, it doesn't ask your permission to, you know, suddenly take you on a wild ride. It just does it. Have you noticed that? And often you can't control it. This is a revelation to many people, and it is an interesting uh it is an interesting lesson in how we imprison ourselves in our own mental world. I'd like to tell a story, it's a true story, about a tiger. There was a tiger in the Washington, D.C. zoo for many years. It was a white tiger, a beautiful animal named Mohanda. And this tiger, uh, for some years, lived in a cage. It wasn't a very large cage, something like 12 feet by 18 feet or something along those lines. And people felt really bad about this because it was clearly, you know, this animal should have, wasn't, it should not have been in a, such a small cage. And anyway, they did a whole fundraising campaign to finally build Mohanda a beautiful uh, uh, place to live with all the trees and 
grasses and water and rocks and hills and everything where he could really have a much better quality of life, some acres that would be his. So the day came where they uh, moved Mohanda to his new ecosystem, put him there, and to everyone's surprise, he shrank to one corner of it, one small protected little space, pretty much the size of his cage. And he stayed there, and he would not go outside the boundaries of this very small area. He had become a prisoner of his own habit of being in a cage. It's a very sad story, really. But it is not unlike us. We keep ourselves in the familiarity of our habits of mind, even if they're not pleasant, because they're familiar. So meditation, and here on retreat, we may begin to intuit or sense the life that is available to us beyond our habitual tendencies, the space of mind and being that is available to us if we dared to let go of some of these habitual tendencies. We may get a glimpse. We may taste the freedom of it. It may freak us out. It may delight us. It may entice us to, to be brave and go out a little further, to taste this possibility of greater freedom. On retreat, we have such intuitions, and it's often what keeps us practicing, going further, deeper. And we discover we can let go, that even habits that have been with us for a very long time, it is possible for them to transform. And it's very wonderful now that the brain science is showing this as a very real uh, transformation. They, They can see in the brain how old habits can change and new habits can be implanted or, or new neuronal pathways grow in the brain as we learn new habits. So that's is, this is good news. A little story about um, Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus, that kind of illustrates this. This is by um, the writer Stephen Mitchell. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with his rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it, He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, 
let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. This is what meditation is offering us, the possibility of putting it down, putting it down. Sometimes on retreat, we may experience being here as a kind of a punishment or as a bitter medicine which must be grimly endured for the sake of some future happiness. Probably by now that future happiness is called going home again. (laughs) But I like to say to people, if you think about where you'll be next week this time, which would be back at work probably, next week this time, you may actually be wishing you were back here. So remember to make the best of it while you are here. Now it's true that retreats have their challenges and they can be very difficult, especially the first few days. Often we add to that sense of letting go and letting not having things we like with us and having things we don't like with us we add to that by a kind of critical judgmental attitude towards ourselves and if you are feeling the retreat as a kind of punishment take a look and see if you're not that isn't being amplified by the attitude of mind that you're bringing towards yourself maybe feeling like, I can't do this, or I'm not doing it well enough, or I'm not doing it right, or I'm failing, like I've done every other thing, I'm failing at this. Those kinds of attitudes are not uncommon on retreat, and they really get in the way of opening ourselves to what is some of the potential here. An example is... um, Uh, One example is uh, of a woman who, uh, many years ago this was, it was her first retreat, and she came to me and said, she was in a room with two roommates, and she said, they hate me. I said, why do you say that? Why do you think your roommates hate you? She said, because they're not talking to me. Well, yes, that's right. They're not talking to you because we're in noble silence. But for her, silence had the import or the meaning of when she was a kid, her parents wouldn't talk to her. So for her, silence felt like punishment. And that can happen, which is why I'm mentioning it. Another woman had the same reaction to people not making eye contact with her. She thought they didn't like her. Or a person who reported doing walking meditation, reported in the walking meditation that he noticed he was making a note of lifting, moving, failing. Lifting, moving, failing these little ways we have of you know just this is i'm i'm not the right kind of person to be doing this i'm this is you know or something i shouldn't be here the truth is that mindfulness is not for or against anything 
Mindfulness is neutral. It is simply a mirror of what is here. It simply reflects what is so. So anything that we are adding to that is not mindfulness, it's judgment. It is uh, a critical, aversive state of mind. Another common reaction to being on retreat is the feeling that this retreat is making me suffer. I was fine before I came here. I had a happy, productive life. (laughs) Now I'm on this retreat, and the reason I'm suffering is that obviously there's silence. There's, you can't talk to anybody. There's all these rules. There's a schedule. There's all these reasons why I'm suffering. I need chocolate. I need coffee. I know that would really perk me up if I just had a good cup of coffee or if I could only read a book. All these things that say, that's why I'm miserable. So we get to see that in our lives, we depend on a lot of external supports for our well-being. The cup of tea, the chat with a friend, the hug of a partner, the entertainment of our favorite show. We depend on a lot of external supports for our sense of well-being and okayness. In meditation, we are actually going towards a happiness that is not dependent on external conditions. And that is a quest that requires letting go. What would it be like not to rely on the externals for our sense of well-being, okayness, happiness? Retreat also shows us our expectations. And expectations are a tricky business. Our expectations show us the gap which exists between how we want something to be and how it actually is. We may have had expectations that have already been disappointed about how this retreat was going to be and how you were going to be. Instead of our expectations being met here, hardly ever are people's expectations met here. That's the truth. That's meant to bring you a sense of relief. I don't know if it is or not. But... um, It's curious. Instead of getting our expectations met, we get something else, which is the actuality of our experience. The actuality of our experience. Achan Sumedho, one of the um, wonderful monks in this tradition who comes to Spirit Rock, says this about He was giving advice to some of his monks as they began retreat, and he said to them, make your intention not just to have the kind of retreat that you would like, 
but to open yourself to whatever arises. Psychologically, this prepares us for the way life moves and changes. When we set our mind trying to make life into what we want, then we are always feeling frustrated when it does not go the way we would like. So try changing the attitude to one of acceptance and willingness to look at and understand experience rather than just trying to get rid of them or make them how we want them. So this attitude of mindfulness of whatever experience we're having, can I understand it? Can I be curious about it? Can I be open to it? Can I allow it to be as it is, not as I think it should be? This can be quite a a big piece of learning. Another way that retreat teaches us is in uh, the aloneness that we are we are here entering, being with a certain kind of continuous aloneness. We're letting go of our habits again of depending on others for our sense of well-being, learning to rely on ourselves to find our way. And in that comes a tremendous sense of confidence and a kind of freedom. When we look inside, when we sit and listen, we find inside many voices, many different kinds of voices, the voice of the judge, the critic, the complainer, the whiner, the, the impatient person. We could list many voices. The voice that begins to wake up and that is a useful voice to listen to is the voice of the inner teacher, the voice of the compassionate, confident coach, you could say, that says, it's okay, you're doing well, just stay here, just be with this. Let's be curious about this experience. Let's be open to this. Instead of all those other voices, we begin to sense our own inner guidance. And that's no small thing, but it's essential on the spiritual path that we develop a sense of inner guidance, the inner teacher, the voice of confidence, of compassion, of encouragement, There's also the, the uh, condition of a retreat that we mentioned last night, that of noble silence. There was one teacher that I heard many years ago who um, came to a long retreat. He was an Indian man, Munindraji, who had been Joseph Goldstein's first teacher. And he... Um, gave a talk one night in which he said there are 92 kinds of silence. I mean, I was just struggling with the only kind I knew, which was nobody talking. And um, 
it was a phenomenal thing. And I, to this day, have no idea what those 92 kinds of silence are. But the fact that there could be a spiritual discipline in which people had sorted this out, you know, and could describe and be that nuanced and discriminating about the various kinds of silence just blew my mind. So obviously silence isn't a really important part of the spiritual journey. One of the Christian desert fathers said, if you love truth, be a lover of silence. They go together, the pursuit of truth and the learning to be at home in silence. It's not obvious what silence will bring to you. It may seem quite unnatural at first not to talk to other people. It may feel scary. It may feel disconnected. But over time, it allows actually for a deeper connection in which we come alive to ourselves and to the world around us. The connection we so often search or seek for with others through words is often found more profoundly in silence. And even in the way that you are relating with each other, you may feel quite a strong connection, even though you're not the sharing stories or opinions or telling each other this and that during the day. But even in the silence, you, you may feel a, quite a connection with other people on retreat. Lastly, it's very helpful to notice how we think about meditation. And this is not always so easy to teach how to think about meditation. We teach a lot about how to do meditation. We don't always mention that it's also important how we think about it. Because how we think about our practice, how we think about meditation will influence how we actually experience it. If we think of meditation, and which is, this is one way we think about it, which is very, very common, as a way to have a very special experience of some kind, as a way to get rid of everything that we don't like and only have Now, I'll only have peaceful, calm, happy experiences for the rest of my life. Wouldn't that be nice? We just come in here with a big eraser and just erase all the difficult stuff. And only, you know, from now on, I have a peaceful mind. Well, there's some truth in that. And it's also a distortion because we don't understand really what peace is about. So we think it's an experience that will forever alter our state of consciousness and not so that nothing will ever bother us again. And that's an erroneous assumption. There is a peace that meditation brings, but it does not come so much from having special experiences as from a deeper wisdom and understanding of the nature of this mind, the nature of this body. That is a deeper, more enduring sense of well-being and peace. 
So we're not looking for any particular kind of experience, but rather the capacity and the skill to meet whatever experience arises with greater equanimity and with greater clarity. One of my favorite analogies for this practice is that of surfing. Years ago, there was a, a poster of Swami Satchidananda on a surfboard, this, Indi- this Indian guru doing a yoga asana on a surfboard. And the, the, the phrase under it was, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf. And that is really the attitude that is most useful to bring to meditation. The waves of the mind are, are unpredictable, unlikely to stop unless you're, you know, living very quietly up in the mountains somewhere. The waves will keep coming. Can we learn how to ride them with skill, with grace? That is in our capacity. That is in our power to learn. And that is our task. I spoke before about the attitude of mind that, that we can bring that is very judgmental, very critical of ourselves, even punitive. Uh, and we can also say that meditation is very much about training ourselves to meet ourselves with greater kindness and understanding, with greater compassion, greater clarity. And this is no small thing. The Zen teacher Sherry Huber wrote this. She said, the only difference between the life you are living and the life you want to live is the feeling of being appreciated, loved, and accepted unconditionally. That only comes from training, from practice, from a mind that understands how to meet ourselves, how to meet the world with greater compassion, greater understanding, greater kindness. So altogether, we could say that retreats are uh, in this form are really uh, special situations where we have the opportunity to learn so very much about ourselves and about this path of practice. Very few of us, I think I said the other night, would do this all by ourselves at home. But in the supportive conditions of retreat, we have the opportunity just as the Buddha did, to learn through trial and error, to keep looking, to keep exploring inwardly, to keep seeing what it is that we're being asked to let go of, to see what we are opening ourselves to, to cultivate the quality of uh, wisdom and open-heartedness that this journey is very much about. And in this, it's not so much what is happening in our practice, but how we are relating to it, moment to moment, as it arises, as we are challenged, 
not what is happening, but how am I relating to it? So we'll be at, we'll have a lot more to say about this as we move through the week together. But I think I'll stop for now. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit together for a moment. We now have a half an hour for um, walking meditation and we'll sit together again for the last sitting of the day at nine o'clock and we'll also include some chanting in that sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.